The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. Never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lapin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, welcome all you noble and upright citizens, you patriotic people with secret dreams of daring and hidden hopes of heroism. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. And I don't want to speak about the coronavirus today. Uh, It's a topic that I have addressed in a number of earlier podcasts during preceding weeks. And if you are relatively new to the show and you'd like to go back, uh, hear those, please do. And if necessary, next week I will have some more practical guidance in terms of living with the coronavirus. But uh, the, the truth is that we are all not only living in a state of uncertainty, but we're somehow coping in different ways. And uh, in some, some of us better than others. But we're all struggling with a combination of concern, fear, stress uh, over the medical implications. Uh, Can you actually get sick? What will happen if you do? Um, We're concerned about the economic implications. What is going to happen Uh, to my revenue, what is going to happen to my um, portfolio of investments, if you're lucky enough to have one, what is going to happen to uh, uh, jobs in general, mine in particular, these are real economic concerns. So you worry about the medical, you worry about the economic, and also, no question, but you're also worrying about the curtailment of civil rights There's no doubt about that. You know, William Pitt, the younger, was a great British prime minister immediately after the American War of Independence. He became prime minister um, 17, uh, I don't, I don't remember, seven, somewhere around about 17, 1780, uh, maybe 1782, something like that. I don't remember exactly, but uh, it was, it was after, it was, it was between the end of our uh, War of Independence and the start of the French Revolution. That's, that's sort of how I date him. Anyway, one of the fantastic things he said is, Uh, One of his political opponents um, was trying to introduce a bill that was going to basically nationalize a large and part of the the most important revenue producing part of the economy. And here's what William Pitt the Younger said. Necessity is the plea for every infringement of human freedom. It is the argument of tyrants. It is the creed of slaves. You know, he's saying that every time government expands its reach, 
Every time government seizes more of the economy, every time government reaches more voraciously into every corner of human life, it is always by citing necessity. And so again, he said, necessity is the plea for every infringement of human freedom. It's the argument of tyrants. It is the creed of slaves. And sure enough, um, it is the talk of public policy that makes it possible for the curtailment of civil liberties that many are worried about in addition to worrying about the medical dimension, worrying about the economic dimension. And so, uh, with all the stress, not knowing what is going to happen, how far is this curtailment, uh, the very un-American curtailment of liberty is going to go? And in other countries that do not have an American tradition, even in other countries, they worry about the extent to which this has resulted in an expansion of government and they, they rightly worry about whether the government will ever retract to its former size. And they, in addition, the, the economic aspect, the medical aspect. And I think it is the, uh, the, the sense of not knowing. You know, we're, we're all blessed to have been living in an enormously predictable environment. You've kind of got a rough idea. You know, there's, there's shocks and surprises every now and then on the political front, on the meteorological front. Uh, people sometimes imagine shocks and changes. Sometimes they're real. But more or less, people say, no, you know what? Uh, this is basically not only knowable, but we kind of got a pretty good sense of what it is going to be. We not only realize we could know what's coming down the road, we think we do know what's coming down the road, and we actually get pretty resentful at the notion of something coming down the road that we didn't expect. How dare they surprise us? Um, you know, think back to uh, the election of Donald Trump in November 2016. But what we're dealing with now is not only a set of circumstances in which we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Are we going to become more persuaded of the medical peril? Are we going to suddenly discover greater economic stress than we anticipated? Uh, are we looking ahead to greater seizure of government control? Who knows? And I would suggest to you, looking at this through the eyes of ancient Jewish wisdom, that a lot of the stress that we are suffering right now is not only from the fact that we don't know what's coming down the road because we have been spoiled by the predictability of our successful civilization but we're stressed by its unknowability which is one stage more serious you, you follow what I'm, I'm saying that what we're looking at is actually not only a future that we don't know but it's almost perhaps that it's unknowable and so, what do we do? How do we cope with unknowable situations? Understandably, we feel at best queasy. And 
I'm going to tell you the guidance from ancient Jewish wisdom that might be useful to you on some level, as it has been to to me and to my family. And that is, I want to tell you about uh, the the story of Abraham, who, uh, at the end of Genesis chapter 11, Abraham's father takes him on a journey, uproots the whole family from where they're living, and takes him on a journey to the land of Canaan. No explanation what, why, how, but off they go. And then, inexplicably, they pause um, in a place and... Um, uh, this place, Haran, at the end of chapter 11 of Genesis, is where Abraham's father, Terah, all of a sudden dies, and all of a sudden Abraham is now left there, uprooted from his homeland, far away from everybody he knew, far away from the the routines and the resources of his entire life. He's not even yet at some kind of destiny that his father envisaged in the land of Canaan. There they are, stuck in Haran. And Abraham has to have felt pretty much the way many of us do right now, which is, I don't know where, I don't what's going on? I'm in an unaccustomed place. I don't know what I'm doing here and now. I don't know what's coming ahead down the road. And all of a sudden, the Lord says to him at the beginning of 12, now you should get going for your own benefit. That's what the Hebrew says. Lech lecha. Get going now for your own benefit. Leave from your place, from your birthplace, from the house of your father, to a land which I will show you. And this is very different from the way we ordinarily travel, right? If somebody says, uh, what's the rush? You say, I'm going to the airport. Why? Because I've got a flight to Salt Lake City. That's what we normally say. We always speak in terms of destination. I'm, I'm going somewhere. I'm leaving on a jet plane, sang the old song. To where? I don't know. Well, it's not a case of I don't know. It's a case of trying to understand what I have to do now. In other words, is it absolutely essential to see the future with great clarity before knowing what I have to do today? Not at all. One doesn't need to do that. Basically, the question I have to ask myself today is, what's going to be happening next week? No, not that. Um, I, I've, I can't go on without knowing what is the government going to do next. I can't carry on without knowing what the latest projections are from the Center for Disease. Con- no, I, and all I've got to know is what does God need me to do today? Literally. And I, I tell you this, whether you yourself are, are a person of faith or not, uh, either way, the way to deal with this situation is to know what your duty is for today. What do you do today? And that's really all you need to know. How do I inject order and structure into what appears to be a crazy and chaotic set of circumstances? Yeah, that's possible. Okay, let me figure this out. You know, maybe, maybe it means no more than getting out of my pajamas, exercising and getting properly dressed for a day of productive work first thing in the morning even though i'm not going to be leaving the house and that's that's just a very um simplified a minimal of of what i'm talking about we don't need 
to see the future. We don't need to know an unknowable future. All we need to know is, okay, so what does God need from me this very day? And that, I think, is all we need to be talking about. And that is what I think we need to talk about right now. We're talking about the three things you need for life success. That's right, three things. I'm not going to say they're easy, but they are three simple things you need for life success. You do not need to know how to play tennis. You do not need to be spectacularly good-looking. You do not need to be an avid stamp collector. No, none of those things in the final analysis matter under certain circumstances. Some of them are nice. But uh, as always makes sense, you know the old story, right? Where uh, if you've got uh, a lot of stones of different sizes to get into the jug or get into the, the bottle, you put the big ones first and then the little ones in the spaces in between and then the teeny ones on top of that. But if you go the other way, and by the way, this is a real life experiment. Uh, you can try this. Pretend you're teaching your children something when in reality it's an experiment you want to undergo and an experience yourself. Uh, get a jug, you know, like a mason jar or something and get uh, pebbles and get a bunch of sand and then get some bigger stones and uh, and arrange them so that uh, you just get them in if you put the big stones first and then you uh, you intersperse with the little stones as you add big stones so little stones are taking up spaces between the big ones and then you add the sand at the end and then try the experiment going the other way well if you if you got just the right amount that could just get in if you if you uh, loaded the jar the correct way, you'll discover that if you try loading the jar the incorrect way, namely all the little things first, uh, you actually <laughs> you can never get the big ones in. And what a great metaphor that is for life as well. Uh, you've got to identify the big things. The goal is not to keep busy doing the things you like doing. The goal is to uh, get the big rocks into the jar first. Do the things that, uh, that, that are challenging, the important ones. The big ones have to be done first. And then you fit in all the little ones after that. Such a good lesson. And the same is true with uh, things that we really need for success as well, right? Uh, in other words, uh, it may well be so that uh, learning to apply makeup is... Uh, is useful and valuable, but is it really in the top three? No. But if you get the top three down, guess what? You will actually have time, energy, and resources to do the others. But if you focus on the little things, the, the kind of things that waste time, but you enjoy them, and they're easiest to do, they're habitual, uh, you never get around to the big ones, and uh, things go rather miserable. So what are the three biggies? The three biggies are, are so important that if, um, if, if I'm raising children, as, as I am, I must tell you that uh, my wife and I, we, we really focus on, on these biggies. And uh, we actually, you know, we gave up on, on other things. For instance, we had a wonderful opportunity uh, for our children to learn piano. Uh, a, a woman in our uh, synagogue back in California uh, was uh, a, a piano teacher who trained concert pianists. She was really outstanding and at the top of her field. 
and uh, in in gratitude for for the the Bible and life lessons that she'd learnt uh, during her years with me in the congregation, she asked if she could uh, give our children piano lessons and. Uh, you know, and I knew what this what this represented in terms of of tuition. She she was going to do this as a gift, and it was uh, it, it was way more than I I would have dreamed of spending. So it was a very valuable gift, no question about it. But uh, uh, Susan and I really went and thought about this, and uh, and I, I I don't I don't know necessarily that our children uh, agreed with our decision on this we didn't we did not ask them we felt it was a family decision that we had to make the decision on uh, and in hindsight i wouldn't be at all surprised if uh, if they'd say to themselves oh i wish i would have been able to learn the piano they may well have done but we had to make the decision that in uh, a real and finite life with uh, finite resources and limited time uh, we had to decide and we realized that given the things that we felt were the big rocks in the life of our mason jar, uh, we uh, we simply didn't have time. Well, to be precise, here's how we figured it. Uh, there was time to do the lessons. However, uh, she was such a perfectionist, this teacher, that she would have been incredibly frustrated had they not done the requisite amount of practicing in between the lessons. And that, that obviously is, if, you know, if you've learned classical piano, that's obviously vital. And uh, and we knew that we would not be able to keep up that part of it and uh, that that would render the entire exercise somewhat futile. And uh, even more seriously, we were worried that that would uh, jeopardize our friendship, our relationship with her. So we, we thanked her very, very much and, uh, and expressed our gratitude in tangible ways. But uh, we made a pass. We declined on that particular offer because you've got to decide what are the things we decided. Well, the three biggies, here are the three big stones in the mason jar of our life, what we knew we had to get across. Number one, we had to get across the, uh, the idea of the spiritual realities and good and evil in the sense that if you don't know anything at all about the spiritual aspect of life, then you're not going to know anything at all about good and evil. It, it, the two go together. And uh, this is why, as uh, the, the spiritual realities have evaporated from public life in the Western world, Europe and the United States, North America, uh, as spiritual awareness ebbs away, so does understanding of good and evil, and uh, so does situational ethics, which is, which is the viewpoint that says what's right for you may be wrong for me, and vice versa, because it all just depends on our own personal experience. No absolute right or wrong, and that's, that's what they believe. And it, it creates societal turmoil eventually. It's, uh, it's obviously very destructive indeed for anybody who believes in the value of a stable society. And so uh, we have to, uh, we realize we've got to teach uh, the spiritual reality of good and evil, number one. Number two, we had to teach how money really works. And uh, number three, we had to teach how male-female relationships really work. And I must tell you, my friends, that uh, if you are at the point of, uh, of raising children who are still young or, or influencing children who are raising your grandchildren, 
I would recommend that you think this through very carefully. I'd recommend that you uh, listen through and enjoy this podcast. I will certainly intend to, to make it as palatable as possible. But the important thing is that one can easily blow one's life. One can blow one's children's lives, the easiest thing in the world. And one of the safest ways of making sure that, that you don't is making sure that whatever else you do for them, and maybe it's yourself, maybe you're not raised, maybe you, you're trying to establish your own way in life, maybe, maybe you're not a young person, but it's never too late to start rearranging your life and establishing your priorities and structuring how you want your life from here onwards to look. There really is hardly anything more important than saying, wait a moment, I've got to get these three things lined up. Do I understand the spiritual realities, including good and evil? Do I understand how money really works? And do I understand how male-female relationships really work? I think it would probably be safe to say for, for all of us, and it's, it's certainly true for me, but wouldn't it be true for you as well to say that if you if you look back and try and identify uh, points in life where you took wrong turns, places in life where you made wrong decisions, these might have not have been in and of themselves major crossroads of life where you stepped back for a moment and peered out toward the horizon, knowledgeable that in front of you stood a major decision. No, life doesn't always work that way. More often than not, uh, it's a sequence of smaller crossroads that in aggregate total up to going off in a certain direction. But if you think back to places where you made bad decisions and, uh, and paid the price for it, probably, maybe you're still paying the price for it, uh, you would see that they would have been in these three areas. Number one, some sort of mistake in the area of faith, connection with God, spiritual awareness, good and evil. Uh, number two, you you made some mistake uh, in in your knowledge. Maybe you didn't have any knowledge or understanding of how money really works, and uh, and you know maybe you uh, you maybe you you volunteered at a time in your life when you should have been working, building up a uh, profitable and remunerative career. Who knows? Uh, and number three, you could possibly have made a mistake in the area of male female relationships. Maybe a lot of mistakes. And uh, here, mistakes are made equally by women and men. Women tend to make the mistake very often of um, having enormous faith in the redemptive power of romantic and erotic love. And it is, it is true. God created the world as, as I see it. And of course, I know I have listeners who see things a little bit differently. And uh, I'm grateful that you nonetheless find value in this podcast. And, uh, and so uh, you know that uh, what I'm about to say will be as relevant and as useful whether you believe that we are here on this planet through a lengthy process of unaided materialistic evolution, uh, or you believe that God created us in his, in his image and put us here. But uh, either way, uh, the way I put it is that uh, God created us in such a way that it is true. Men are incredibly motivated 
by women, both in terms of romantic love, in other words, earning the love, the especially the respect, the admiration of a woman, and the uh, potential of erotic love. Those things have the power to transform men. They really do. And uh, women are much more aware of that intuitively than, than men are, which is why so many women seek to uh, fix men, uh, where, where women think, well, I'm going to be able to make that deep hurt go away. I'm going to be able to help restore his relationship with his family. Uh, I'm going to be able to help him uh, begin to take work seriously. And this is one of the great mistakes that women make, not understanding male-female relationships well. And, um, and by the way, if, uh, if, uh, if women can do that, and, and if that is true, then why does it work out so dreadfully, so frequently? Well, the answer is that uh, women have the power to transform men through romantic and erotic love, uh, not boys, men. And while women are very good at transforming men with romantic and erotic love, uh, they make the mistake of loving boys instead of men. And uh, none of that works on boys. As a matter of fact, there's only one sort of person that should love a boy unconditionally, and that's his mom. But uh, no, no woman, particularly a young woman, should love a boy. Uh, she should only lavish her love and spread her affection over a man, but never a boy. That is why those kinds of mistakes uh, take place. Men, of course, um, <clears throat> or I should say boys probably, um, make the mistake of uh, using their eyes instead of their ears. And uh, overwhelmingly, I think you'll agree that you or any of the men you know who made dreadful romantic choices in life, bad, bad mistakes in the male area of male-female relationships, uh, did it because of the impact of what they saw with their eyes, not with the impact of uh, what they understood with their head or heard with their ears. So... Um, that is uh, a little bit of what we're going to be looking at then. These three things the, and, and how they work and how one gets a clear and full understanding of uh, the spiritual uh, reality, male-female uh, relationships, and how money really works. Uh, obviously, a whole lot more than I can cover in the space of one show. And all of that is on resources like Madam, I'm Adam, Decoding Marriage Secrets from Eden, uh, the Income Abundance Package, and many other things that you can find in the store on my website, rabbidaniellappin.com, looking at the, the three crucial areas of knowledge needed for successful living. And uh, again, some of you are interested as to where about in ancient Jewish wisdom some of this material is embedded. And I say embedded, uh, I could use the word encoded or encrypted, because a lot of it is found within the uh, complex structure and syntax of the Lord's language, of the Hebrew uh, scripture. And uh, we'd be looking at primarily the, the Garden of Eden. And, and here it's, it's evident that there are three main dimensions to the Garden of Eden. One of them is God. Uh, the other one is man. And the other one is woman. 
And uh, what's going on in the story? Well, the, the, the main thing I think that I want to lay out for you is that, uh, first of all, we have uh, Mad Adam, the, the, the primal human being, who is uh, in a relationship with God. And so here is a guy who, right at the very outset, knows far more than any of us. In other words, in, in the sense that whereas we have to gradually work and develop uh, a relationship with God, and if you yourself are, are not a, a religious person, then at the very least, you're going to want to develop a, a relationship with the spiritual side of life, inescapably. These are, are things you're going to want to know, you're going to want to understand. And uh, the second thing is, of course, we see is that Adam and Eve are now, so now we've got a male-female relationship going on there. And uh, finally, we have a relationship between um, mankind and the earth. In other words, uh, we have to eat, right? We have to, we have to be protected from temperature extremes. We need water to drink, let alone air to breathe. And uh, it is the earth that is able to supply that for us in conjunction with our working according to the blueprint, working correctly. And it's very easy to look at cultures and countries. And in earlier podcasts, by the way, I've covered this extensively, if you haven't heard them, uh, it's perfectly obvious how many countries do not follow the biblical blueprint and naturally pay the price very severely in terms of uh, uh, economic failure, uh, cultural failure, uh, when I say cultural failure, I mean that essentially uh, life is not assured, not only in terms of sustenance, but in terms of uh, criminality and, and plunder and, and banditry, massive problems. And so there is such a thing as, uh, as a blueprint and, and how it is meant to work. And so uh, God says to Adam towards the end of the story, and this is not, by the way, as commonly misunderstood. It's not part of the punishment that the Almighty inflicts on Adam, uh, but it's actually part of the blessing, which is by the sweat of your brow, you shall eat bread. And uh, there are a couple of points here. First of all, in the Hebrew nomenclature, the word bread almost always has a parallel meaning of money. And, um, and you know, spreading bread means spreading money. And uh, the, the languages, many languages of the world have understood this and adopted this on some subtle level, which is why in English as well as in other languages, bread is very often a slang term for money. Like, can you lend me some bread or got any dough on you, right? Dough for making bread. Uh, this is something that is implanted quite deeply, I think, in, in the collective human psyche, that uh, that bread is, is sort of literally what we eat. It's the, the staple of, of, of the Western world. Uh, other parts of the world make rice the staple, but in the Western world, growing as it has out of bread, uh, out of out of Judeo-Christian thinking and out of the Bible, not only not only uh, do people make bread the staple, but they even make bread sacramental. And so, in both Christianity and Judaism, in Catholicism particularly. Uh, 
uh, bread acquires a sacramental role. And even for those of you who may have grown up in, in, in a completely secular environment, uh, it's not uncommon for your mothers to have objected strongly to you and your brothers having bread fights. Now, if you wanted to throw zucchinis at each other, you know, she might not have loved it. But so many people have confirmed for me that this was uh, something somehow they never thought about it till I mentioned it or they heard me speak about it, but that their mothers got rabid when they would uh, treat bread disrespectfully. Not, you know, not zucchinis, not carrots, not uh, pickles and cucumbers, but uh, bread. So it's not just that it's food, because there's many foods that, uh, you know, that we eat and, and that certainly we should not treat disrespectfully. But bread particularly. Why? Because of this notion that, that bread is at the essence of what we eat. In other words, um, I eat because I have bread. Or if you like, put it another way, I eat because I have money. If I'm not able to pay for the food, I can't eat. It's as simple as that. And so, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat bread, meaning you will make money by working for it, and it'll be by your sweat. In other words, I do not have the right to anybody else's bread. Now, this is an immensely powerful idea, and one that goes very much against the grain of people's intuition. You know, every now and then, uh, there are groups in society right now, uh, the, the Germans, the Austrians, oh, the Norwegians, by the way, have had this for years already. Uh, these are countries that have had very large uh, immigrations of uh, Muslims from Middle East and North Africa. And, and here's the thing. Look, uh, one can see the advantages of bringing in immigrants. I, I hear all of that. Uh, if you do have an aging population, you know, or or you uh, you have opportunity. Look, uh, people for the people have the capacity of being a net asset within an economy. Right? It's simple to figure it out. The proof of it is that in a functioning, healthy, vibrant, biblically based society. There are roads that are paved, and there are people cleaning the litter off the road, and there are museums and art galleries, and there are power poles, and there are places of entertainment. How do all these things come about? The answer is that uh, when people make money, they make more than they actually need to survive. And then by common agreement, they pay taxes, although they may not necessarily have common agreement about the extent and the confiscatory rates of those taxes, but they pay taxes nonetheless. And that excess over what they actually need to live on, some of it goes into savings, some of it goes into roads and uh, hygiene and art galleries and hospitals. And those are the signs of a functioning society. You'll notice and I'm only being uh, partially frivolous here, is that uh, squirrels right, do not create museums of nuts and raisins right, because they don't have any excess. Squirrels gather and they eat and they store away for the winter and then they, they eat those. And so it is with, with all other animals as well. They, they're not able to create a reserve. 
and the miracle of money is what makes it possible for human beings to to be uh, net assets to a society. So on the surface of it, uh, it would make sense. We say, look, you know, since uh, the effectiveness of a society in terms of how much extra it has in terms of financial resources is a function of how many people, right? I mean, that's that's pretty clear. Uh, you, you know, you take a look at uh, the ability of of uh, Georgia to spend money on state expenditures, and you look at Rhode Island's ability to spend money on state expenditures, leaving aside uh, differences in tax rates and uh, and tax policies, by and large, the difference is a function of population. If you look at the gross domestic product, you won't be shocked to hear that the GDP of, of, of Georgia is about eight times that of Rhode Island. Now, if you look at the population, guess what? It's about the same difference, about eight times more people in Georgia than Rhode Island. So people would look at that, and I'm thinking, you know, Germans or Norwegians or Swedes or British, and say, oh, well, well, look, you know, if if a million people produce this kind of gross domestic product, and obviously the, uh, the amount of money that can be taxed is proportional to the GDP, I mean, how much money is how much creativity, economic activity there is in a state has to do with how much can be taxed, obviously. Uh, Let's increase the number of people. And since people are refusing stubbornly to increase rapidly enough by means of natural procreation, why? We'll just do an end run around them and we'll bring them in by, uh, by immigration. The mistake is, however, that not all human beings deliver an excess Not all human beings produce more economic productivity than they consume. There are many for whom it is the reverse. And these are people who, for the most part, are not living according to, I call it a Judeo-Christian biblical blueprint. Um, You might call it a a Western economic model or a, a modern democratic model, but whatever it is, It's perfectly clear, and looking around American society, it's not hard to see that we have it here. Um, If you, uh, in in almost every society of the modern epoch, students at one point or another have constituted a uh, society pressure point, a pressure group, a uh, special interests group. And, uh, you know, back in the 60s, there was uh, tremendous student upheaval. Students made demands. Paradoxically, back then, you'll remember, they were protesting for freedom of speech. And more recently, we see students protesting for the abolition of free speech. So, I mean, that tells you right there that something isn't right. But what else students invariably tend to uh, uh, argue for is uh, more money, free board and lodging, uh, exoneration of student debt, free free tuition, and, and so on and so forth, uh, always asking for these things. Perfectly natural, perfectly normal. We understand that. Uh, in Norway, increasing numbers of people coming in, all of one persuasion. And so whereas you might be able to persuade me of the idea that immigration 
is a good uh, is a good idea and a good point and by the way do you know what the biggest immigrant group before the current mexican invasion the before the hispanic invasion of america what were and by the way when i say invasion i don't mean negatively okay because i understand and um, and many of you have written to me to to emphasize this uh, i'm not in any way suggesting that every hispanic immigrant is on the dole i'm not saying that at all but when i say an invasion it's a de facto invasion Uh, not necessarily with each and every person willingly and voluntarily and knowingly and purposefully being part of that invasion, no. But the fact that uh, has American society changed in the last 40 years, has it changed with the invasion of Hispanic uh, population? Of course it has. There's There's no question about it. And in that sense, it's an invasion. What was the biggest group that came to America uh, prior to the Hispanic invasion. You know it was? Germans. Now, let me, uh, let me put this bluntly. I can't think of a, a better way to put it. But you do see that there is a difference between a very large number of Germans coming into a country. These are the people that have created, and yes, they've also brought us a couple of world wars, I understand, but the only reason they were capable of bringing those world wars is precisely because of their self-discipline, their social structure, their obedience to laws, their commitment to a work ethic, and contrast that with, um, with the Hispanic arrival. Very different, right? Would you not agree? Very different indeed. What is the fundamental difference and uh, how are we supposed to adapt to it and how are we to understand it? The website you know, rabbidaniellappin.com, www.rabbidaniellappin.com. That's where I want you to stop in and visit with uh, where my wife Susan and I hang out and uh, share many more things with you. I'm talking about uh, what people are really worth in a society and the true answer is that not all people are worth the same. Uh, the, the point is that, uh, that if you are somebody who is uh, following a biblical blueprint, knowingly or not, by the way, you don't necessarily have to be religious, but if you live in a cultural milieu where that is the accepted norm, think of uh, America up, till, up until 1960. You know, most people went to work, most people raised families, Most men married, and most children were raised in such intact families and raised with all the qualities that automatically are part of growing up in a family, and which coincidentally, and you know what I think of that word, uh, which coincidentally happened to be exactly the same qualities necessary for a successful, vibrant, healthy, wholesome society. And so children grow up in homes of 1950s America, uh, the normal, the Norman Rockwell period, if you like, the 1940s, the 1950s, where uh, there was a mother and father. People today are contemptuous, contemptuous about the leave it to beaver days. Uh, I, I don't let people do that in my presence. I always ask. I try to, I try and do this as nicely as possible, but, uh, 
so you, you really think that uh, the leave it to beaver days were stupid and primitive and uh, tribalistic and anti-women. You think all that, right? So tell me in what way society is better today. Tell me how we've improved. What have we come up with that future generations will look back and say, oh, yeah, the leave it to beaver years were stupid. But uh, back in the first few decades of the 21st century, those Americans, oh, they really got it right. Really? You think so? Um, all I know is that in the the nicer parts of America, seriously, uh, the nicer parts of America where life is still restrained by uh, behavioral rituals based on the Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, all I know is that uh, there's an awful lot of the, the lever to beaver way of life uh, still going on there. But the point is that if if you've got a group of people that are raised, and uh, for the most part, by the way, uh, traditional Germans, whereas the people who immigrated to the United States, really one of the biggest immigrant groups that helped to build the United States of America were German immigrants. Uh, John Roebling uh, was the man who built the Brooklyn Bridge, created a a vast enterprise of uh, uh, building steel cable, factories that made steel cable, uh, John Roebling was part of, I mean, I'm just picking out one, there are so many, many, many famous names of, of German immigrants. Uh, these are people who are raised to, to get married, raise children, go to work every single day, build their neighborhoods, uh, maintain their neighborhoods, make sure that their neighborhoods don't turn into slums. These, that's, that's what living is like, and it requires a form of discipline. It requires a blueprint. It requires commitment to that kind of pattern. And uh, I think without, without being nasty or mean, I, you know, when one sometimes has to uh, uh, decide, are you going to be nice and say only kind, lovely things about everybody, or are you going to tell the truth? And uh, the term political correctness came into being Um, to explain the cowardice involved in abandoning the truth in the interests of making sure that nobody felt bad. And, of course, when you deal with a culture whose main focus is on feelings, well, naturally, it was only a hop, skip, and a jump. It was going to take no time at all before feelings were going to be escalated into the highest metric of human behavior. Hurting people's feelings is the very worst thing. And at the same time, we're emphasizing feelings. And so the range of things upon which I'm going to feel hurt keeps expanding. The number of ways that people can feel offended keeps on climbing. And therefore, the constraints on my speech and on my actions so as not to allow anybody to feel feel bad keeps growing as well until freedom of speech is but a lingering memory of the past so again stressing that i'm not you know like all generalizations okay uh, there are exceptions uh, the overwhelming majority of Jews are uh, charter members of the Democratic Party. The overwhelming majority of Jews are hardcore liberals who believe that government needs to be bigger. All right, this is a true generalization. But wait, that doesn't describe me. I'm a Jew and I'm not like that. Yeah, all right, okay, Lapin, we get it. Calm down. 
calm down, that's okay. You know, one of the reasons that uh, insurance companies make certain judgments is because we do tend to be identifiably affiliated with certain groups. And groups do function in certain predictable ways. It doesn't mean everybody. But that is, it's not an unreasonable first assumption. And number two, when you're looking at the aggregate, when you're looking at the behavior of a large number of people, then it's perfectly logical. This is one of the reasons that the polling industry works pretty well. Round about election time, you know, they actually do pretty well. And you say, wait a moment, there's 300 million people in the country, not all are voters, not all who are voters do vote. But still, to only interview 4,000 people, and they still come, how does that work? Because if you pick your people carefully as representatives of the various groupings, you can draw certain conclusions. And so if I say that um, Brooklyn, New York, has a very high population of Jewish residents, then I can say, you know what, I'm pretty sure that for the most part, Brooklyn will elect Democratic Uh, representatives. Okay, is that fair? Is that, does that tell the truth about every resident in Brooklyn? Come on, you you have to grow up a little bit. (laughs) I mean, you've got to understand the difference. So this is just by way of um, understanding that there's a very big difference between talking about large-scale generalities when you're trying to understand demographic trends or to predict the uh, the movements and and structures of of societal evolution and so yes is there a difference between uh, imagine california had um had uh shall we say 7 million bavarian germans all of who'd held down jobs at Volkswagen, BMW, Audi, and Mercedes, and they and their families immigrated to California. Would that be the same California as the California in which four or five million immigrants are from uh, small villages in South and Central America? Okay, it's obvious, right? And um, whereas the cultural background... Hear me carefully. The cultural background of that German family, they would rather starve than go on the dole. They would rather starve than take food stamps. They would rather starve than get any government assistance. Now, if they were, uh, if they were struggling, they would accept assistance from their church, to which they had been paying dues when things were going well for them. And now we look at uh, a group of people who come with a totally different culture, totally different culture, where very large numbers of Hispanic immigrants are very comfortable being on the dollar. As a matter of fact, they're a lot more comfortable doing that than working. And the fact is that uh, getting paid to do nothing is always more pleasant in the short term than having to work and go to a job early in the morning when you don't feel like it. Obviously, there are long-term drawbacks. There are, are massive, uh, massively destructive consequences. But it takes a certain maturity to act uh, today in a way that is challenging and demands a great deal from one because down the road, you'll be better off. And that kind of maturity, you're more likely to find in German immigrants than in South American immigrants. That's just a reality. Uh, the same is true for Norway. You see, 
like I said earlier, I can understand that for various reasons you might say to yourself, you know, we, we really need more people. More people means more taxpayers. We'll be able to build more museums. We'll be able to strengthen our military. It'd, it'd be a good idea. Our population just isn't big enough. And we don't want to wait for uh, natural growth through uh, families having children. We're going to bring in a whole bunch of immigrants. If you did that, wouldn't it make sense to bring in immigrants, number one, who came from a culture of creating more than they consume? Wouldn't you logically prefer a culture that creates more than it consumes? Right or wrong? I think so. Number two, would you really bring in all your immigrants from one particular cultural background? No. Have you ever heard the term fifth column? What does that mean to you? A fifth column? It means the arising in your society of a group of people who are more tightly bound to one another than they are to you. Do you not remember early in the book of Exodus, chapter 2, where King Pharaoh looks around at the massively, rapidly growing children of Israel, spreading and swarming through the land, and he says to his people, hey, take a look what's going on. There's a very large, rapidly growing population among us. And as an Israelite myself, I don't care for his solution, but I do understand what he was getting at. And he said, look, these are all people whose loyalty to one another is much more than their loyalty to me. Well, one of the great successes of American immigration through the many, many years of its success, 1700s, 1800s, people came to America from England, they came to America from Poland, they came from Ireland, they came from Germany, they came from Sweden. The Northwest, where I lived for many years, the Northwest populated heavily by people from uh, Sweden and Norway and, uh, and Finland and yes, absolutely. People came from everywhere. There was no one group that dominated immigration in America till very recently, relatively recently, I should say. And that's what makes a very big difference. And so Norway goes ahead and they discover, as has England, as has France. Who are the immigrant group in France? Are there lots of people in France from Canada, lots from Australia, lots from, from uh, uh, China? No. The only immigrant group in France, by their numbers, are Muslims. Norway, same thing. So, number one, you've, I mean, I'm talking about why this is such an incredibly stupid policy. Another question, obviously, is, so can Angela Merkel really be stupid? She's not a stupid woman. No, of course she's not. Any more than all the Jews that are ardent, committed liberals, although they don't live their lives that way, uh, are, are not stupid either. There is a reason they're doing these things. That's a different story, and I don't want to digress into that right now. But, uh, but just remember that I say that for people who say liberals are stupid, you're living in a dream world. That's not true. The uh, principles of liberalism and socialism stand up within their own matrix of morality. The prob when you call liberals stupid, you just don't understand that matrix of morality. That's because you need a rabbi still. And I humbly submit, well, you know the rest of that. So uh, you've got to understand that they are not only bringing in large numbers of people of one particular uh, 
um, unifying demographic that'll ensure that all these people, these Muslim immigrants in, in England, in Europe, in France, in Germany, all of these people are far more committed to one another and to their Islamic background than they are to the host country in which they arrive. But that's only part of the problem. There's a bigger problem, and that is that they are uh, not people, for the most part, who create more than they consume. They are people who consume more than they create. And that's why you're beginning to hear all this tremendous worry in Sweden and Norway about uh, the social welfare system heading towards collapse. How can it not? The number of people drawing on it is much higher and growing rapidly. The number of people paying into it is aging and dying off. So how can this last? You, you see the problem quite clearly, I'm sure. And so uh, let us move into now understanding some of the spiritual realities of good and evil that make successful living possible, that are absolutely indispensable. Um, understanding the spiritual realities of good and evil that in and of themselves are not a sufficient condition for happiness and prosperity, but are a necessary condition. The three things I focus on in teaching my children before I worried about anything else at all, how spirituality and good and evil work. Number two, how relationships between male and females work. And number three, how money works. And uh, looking at the first, I uh, have been explaining about the uh, the difference between and in the examples I was using Hispanics and Germans uh, I could just as well have uh, contrasted Zulus and um, and Swedes all right there's nothing intrinsically wrong there's nothing intrinsically wrong with Zulus there's nothing intrinsically wonderful about Swedes but as a group in aggregate the Swedish culture is closer to a Judeo-Christian-based biblical culture that has created Western civilization. And so for any society that wishes to move further down that path of, if you like, call it democratic capitalism or call it freedom, uh, freedom versus tyranny, or call the, the attractions of the West anything you want for the purposes of, of this brief conversation. If that's the kind of society you want, then your public policy would uh, invite and try and bring in more immigrants from Sweden than, than Zulus from Zululand. Right? Similarly, similarly, if uh, the enormously civilized culture of Norway is what you like, and you've decided you want immigrants, by all means, bring in some Muslim immigrants. Why not? Particularly if you pick carefully those who have not been radicalized and uh, those who uh, are not uh, more committed to the wonderful world of the Islamic caliphate than they are to the host country in which they live. Yeah, by all means. And I, I think every country has a right to vet its immigrants. Every country has a right to pick and choose who it wishes to bring in, just as America did. And it wasn't always fair. It wasn't always wonderful. And they did not always open America, did not always open their doors to Jews fleeing oppression in Europe. No, they didn't, because that wasn't the criterion. It's a criterion being used in uh, Germany today, 
and uh, it's filling them with a righteous sense of self-virtue and goodness, uh, but it's a very bad mistake because your responsibility uh, to the citizens of your country as a government is to protect that country. And so the goal is not to turn your country into a lifeboat for the wretched and the suffering of the world. Your goal is to advance the interests of your country. You have to do that. And if you do that successfully, then, of course, your citizens will have the wherewithal to be able to help the wretched and the suffering. But they will do that as private citizens. That's not the role of government. But um, meanwhile, the, uh, the country should have said yes. Norway should have said, yeah, um, you know what, we're going we, we're gonna to take in a certain number of immigrants this year. It'll never be enough to uh, flood our society and to change our society, but uh, we will bring in some immigrants. Uh, 5% of them will be Muslims, and 5% of them will be Zulus, and 5% of them will be uh, uh, Hispanics, and 5% of them <clears throat> are going to be uh, Italians, and 5 are going to be Americans, and 5% are going to be from Canada, and another 10% from Australia. That's how they would divide it up, and they would look and analyze. And by the way, when I became an American citizen, it wasn't automatic at all. I had to have interviews. I actually had to be tested on, on some basic American knowledge. I had to be tested on an ability to, to communicate in English. And, uh, and, and, you know, in, and speaking Zulu just wasn't enough. You actually had to communicate English. So uh, that's, that's what countries certainly have the right to do. Now, Europe isn't doing that partially because with the steamroller-like advance of secularism, there is a diminishing ability to understand spiritual realities. That's what we're talking about. In other words, would spiritual understanding have saved Germany, saved Norway, saved Sweden? Yes, absolutely. Because the idea that there are differences between people that have nothing to do with skin color, that idea the left cannot tolerate. Socialism rejects. Secularism extirpates it from their vocabulary. And that is a fatal mistake. Of course there are people that are different. See, earlier on, when I was telling you that California would be a different state had it welcomed 6,000 uh, former workers off the assembly lines of Audi, Volkswagen, uh, Mercedes, um, and BMW, uh, that's not because they're white and the people from Central and South America are brown, although that is what many people hearing me thought and that's why I was never elected governor of California, because people hear and they say, racism. But racism is a purely materialistic ill. It's based on skin color. And when I decide if I like somebody and I want to associate further with that person, it has nothing to do with the color of their skin. It has nothing to do with how much hair they have on their head. It has nothing to do with where they, whether they uh, wear thin ties or thick ties or no ties at all. No! My evaluation, my discrimination 
And I do discriminate, but not against skin color, against the content of the heart. I discriminate on the basis of spiritual values. When I choose to hire somebody in my company, do you really think I'm looking to see whether they're male or female? Do you think I'm looking to see if they're black or white or brown or orange or yellow? Of course not. But I am looking very carefully for spiritual values. What are the values I'm looking for? I'm looking to see if they're capable of loyalty. That's got nothing to do with anything material. There is no laboratory instrument in the world that I can employ to test a potential employee's loyalty. I have other techniques for that. I want to measure uh, integrity. Are they honest under all circumstances? I want to measure resilience. Do they have the ability to pick themselves up after they've been knocked down? These are, the kind, these are all spiritual values. And so you are a tremendous handicap in the world of business if you do not know anything about spiritual reality. That's what I'm trying to, to get across here. That's what I want everybody to understand. That when the opening verse of Genesis says, in the beginning God created heaven and earth, what does that mean? It means he created earth and what else? Heaven. What, like blue air? Blue-colored sky? What is heaven? Where is it exactly? Do you see? Now, in English, we just read the verse. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth, and off we go. Nobody stops to think about it. But in the Hebrew, you can't do that. And uh, under different circumstances and uh, in the material at my website, rabbidaniellappin.com, I very carefully lay out exactly why heaven and earth are different in that respect and where we understand it from and what it means. However, for present purposes, suffice it to say that the real meaning of that first verse of Scripture, as laid out in ancient Jewish wisdom and as clearly understood from the Hebrew structure of the grammar, the vocabulary, the syntax, is very simple. In the beginning, God created two equivalent realities, a physical one called earth and a spiritual one called heaven. It's so fundamental because you cannot understand how the world really works if you are blind to the spiritual. And so fundamentally, it has to do with understanding differences between people. And when you are a secular society and you reject the spiritual, naturally you fall back on the physical. Hence the obsession with race. Hence the obsession with skin color. Hence the obsession with virtue and morality having nothing to do with anything excel, anything else except, oh, not, not picking out people on the basis of their skin color. Most of us never do. That's what the left doesn't understand. Most of us never do. Other than, if, any, if anything, to overcompensate out of a, a deep sense of uh, misplaced guilt. I mean, does anybody really think that when President Obama became President of the United States in um, uh, 2004, uh, and, and uh, does anybody think that he would have, had he been white? Would he have won that election as a white man? Come on, everybody knows the truth on that. But in general, would people have been just as willing to elect Ben Carson, Dr. Ben Carson, of course. 
Of course, because most people are like me in that respect, or I'm like most people, in that, of course, I judge between people, but not on skin color, on content of character. At the same time, is it true to say that violent crime is disproportionately committed by African-American males? Does that make me an evil person to make that observation? Well, it may be politically incorrect because it hurts some people's feelings. Does it hurt some people's feelings if I say that uh, a disproportionate number of Hispanic immigrants in California accept government benefits, accept welfare on the dole? Of course, these things make people feel bad. Does it make me feel bad when people say uh, the overwhelming majority of Jews are mindless liberals? Yeah, of course it does. It doesn't mean that's not a true observation. Neither does it mean that I am one, or you're one, or he's one. You've got to understand that. When insurance companies charge more to cover as drivers young men of the age of 18 and 19, that doesn't mean that if you're an 18-year-old man, you're a horrible driver. But neither does it mean that the insurance companies are wrong. Because taken as a group, that group of individuals, young men, do are involved in more disproportionately large numbers of accidents. And so you've got to understand that people are very different from one another. But their, their difference has to be evaluated spiritually, not materially. And so if you lack spiritual knowledge and awareness, you're going to be at a handicap. And one of the things we do when we're handicapped is we overcompensate. And we tolerate things in one group of people, any group you may be thinking of or talking about, that you would never tolerate if they were in your own group. And you do it for fear of hurting their feelings because you, you think that you're making the decision based on materialistic and reprehensible bases instead of very legitimate bases, namely spiritual. <clears throat> and so um, if you in your past have picked bad friends, and I'm sure you have, we've all, we've all been there, you've picked friends that have turned out to be bad, the association has not been good for you, I guarantee you, take it from your rabbi, that you did that because you did not apply the correct spiritual parameters in judging the suitability of this person to become your friend. Um, how's about um, if you made bad choices in what to choose for education, what to choose in career? Again, most likely spiritual ignorance was the culprit. If you have not understood what happiness is, if you've thought that happiness can be pursued by having fun, then you also are somebody who is a victim of um, spiritual illiteracy. You've not known or understood the spiritual world. If you've made mistakes based on an inability to understand the difference between humans and animals, you lack spiritual insight. If you are someone who has trouble handing off, delegating, giving responsibility to other people, 
whether it's your spouse or children or employees or co-workers, whatever it is, if you're somebody who has to hover over other people and you cannot hand over responsibility and you cannot hand over authority, you cannot hand over a job, then you suffer from a spiritual inadequacy. Because on its deepest level, you don't fully comprehend and you don't entirely relate to the way that human beings can dramatically change from where they are to where they can become. These are all things that uh, are rooted in, again, back in Genesis, the idea that only man God created from the earth. From the from 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 Earth, uh, animals, a different Hebrew word where animals came from, but human beings came from the Earth. That's why the word Adam. You may not know this, but the word Adam is the same as the Hebrew word Adama, meaning Earth. Adam is from the Earth. What's the point of this? Why is this so very important? Well, it has to do with hombres. That's right. Your rabbi. That's me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin always dedicated to revealing how the world really works. How does it all work? Well, that's what I'm here for. Think of me as the Mother Teresa of broadcasting. I'm here to help. Your radio rabbi, me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, we're moving right along. I was telling you that uh, if, if you've made certain mistakes in the area of delegation, then it is because you lacked certain spiritual knowledge. Okay, and I'm, what I'm explaining here all along is the areas of knowledge we need are threefold, uh, spiritual, male-female relationships, and money. And uh, the, the reason that we are told in the beginning of Genesis, and this is a very, very powerful blueprint, that uh, only humans are created from the earth. Well, there's a very, very good reason for that. You see, this concept is based on the idea that it's hard to find anything that uh, has more contrast between zero potential and limitless potential than the earth. I mean, obviously, a fertilized human ovum is in the same category, but that's where we're, we're trying to understand that. And one of the best places in order to, uh, to look at, in order to understand, is earth. What do I mean by that? Well, if uh, you look at some of the old pictures from the middle of the 19th century of the Galilee in Israel, or uh, you read a description uh, by Mark Twain, that great American author. Uh, he wrote in 1857 of a journey that he took. He did a lot of traveling, and he wrote about it. And he wrote about coming to the Holy Land and uh, going into the Galilee. And he spoke of the Galilee as a barren desert. was nothing there. He wasn't lying. If you look at photographs from the mid-19th century, the, the Galilee was a desert, Literally, barren desert, uh, gullies of erosion. Uh, when it rained, it, everything turned into mud and the, the sand was carried away. Uh, when in the summer it was dry and it just the, the wind blew into sandstorms, that's what it was like. In other words, it looked pretty much like Turkey and Syria and, and Jordan and Egypt. It's pretty much what it looked like. And then the Israelites came home in the 20th century, and today the Galilee is not only the breadbasket of Israel, but it supplies much of the European Union with flowers, with vegetables, with fruit, year-round. Okay, it's changed. That's the difference. Earth can be a desert, it can be a mud hole, or it can be a fragrant garden or a flourishing forest 
or a productive garden, an orchard flowering with trees and fruit. Earth can do all of those things. Well, guess what? That's a spiritual quality of human beings as well. And it's really important that we understand that, but not everybody does. And if you don't get this down, deeply ingrained in your being, you are going to make some very bad mistakes. There's no question about it. And so uh, this concept, by the way, how important it is to understand the relationship between earth and human is captured even in the word human, which uh, derived from the Latin word for earth, humus. Humus, H-U-M-U-S, is earth. No, Fred, it's not a Middle Eastern food made out of crushed chickpeas that you eat with falafel. Not humus. Humus. That means earth. And uh, and humus became human. And it also became, um, if you killed, you see that H-M root of human, the U-S is the Latin ending, but the H-M is the, the root sound. And um, it's the same word you not only get in human, but also in homicide. When you kill a human, it's homicide. If you then bury him and later you unbury him and dig him up, you exhume him, right? Uh, and in uh, in Spanish, which I, I so much wish I knew better than I do, hombre, again, the HM sound at the root of it. So people do get this. And uh, this is an example of one of those spiritual things that's absolutely fundamentally needed. Now, I said you also have to have a clear understanding of uh, human relationships, male and female particularly, and also money. How do I mean and why is this so important? Who says that understanding male-female relationships is more important than learning how to play baseball? Well, let me explain. What I want to do is use as a model and as an example uh, a, um, a television show that was very popular in its day, Uh, I'm not sure where one or how one would get to see any episodes of it today. I have no idea. It's called Gilligan's Island. And and the funny thing is that it wasn't for children. It actually used to run on primetime television in a more innocent America, in an America that did not need a barrage of F-words to persuade it that it's being entertained in an appropriately sophisticated manner. No, we had a more authentic understanding of things back then. And that's how Gilligan's Island, that's just how Gilligan's Island went. Now, the Gilligan's Island model I want to use is this, changed slightly, okay? We can sort of paint Gilligan's Island on a bigger canvas. Let's imagine for the moment that you are a high school teacher. You with me? And you've been asked to take 50 seniors, high school seniors, 16, 17, 18-year-old boys, on a uh, trip to the Galapagos Islands, and uh, and and bear with me as I as I uh, structure and sculpt my thought experiment to say that a sh- a ship bringing you to the uh, Galapagos Islands is wrecked. You are now the only human beings on this remote, isolated Pacific island, and what's more, nobody knows where you are. There's no way to contact anyone else, and it's just you and 50 high school boys, and you are going to be there for two and a half years before the Coast Guard comes and gets you. Now, what are your basic Uh, problems confronting you. You've just arrived. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. The first thing you do is you gather all the boys, make sure everyone got onto land safely. You gather, sure enough, all the 50 boys are there. 
Some of them are filled with false bravado, as 17- and 18-year-old males would be, which is why insurance companies raise their auto insurance premiums. Others are going to be scared. There might even be a few tears. Uh, but all in all, you've got a full spectrum of human emotions that being um, isolated Robinson Crusoe's on a desert island for two and a half years. First job as the adult in charge. What are you going to do? Well, I think you want to make sure you've got uh, shelter for the night and uh, you don't yet know. Are there, are there dangerous animals on the island? Uh, do you need to protect yourselves? You've got nothing, right? So uh, you might make a fire. Uh, fortunately, you one of you was a scout and you knew how to make a fire um, from whatever, whether a magnifying glass. No, you don't have a magnifying glass. Well, whatever. You make a fire. Fine. Uh, I'm, look, this is my thought experiment. So if I want to put matches there on the island, somebody had matches in their pocket. And uh, you, you, you get the boys roused to gather some palm leaves and you set up a bit of a structure so in case of rain they'll be able to pretty much stay dry. By the time all this is done, it's, the sun is going down, you all get to sleep. Next morning everybody gets up and people are a little peckish, you know, but they haven't eaten for a while. Uh, what are you going to do? As the uh, teacher in charge, your main goal is to make certain that when the Coast Guard comes in two and a half years' time, they still find 51 people to rescue you and your 50 charges. What are you going to do? What happens now? Well, uh, I think if it was me, what I'd probably do is uh, I'd probably divide my group into five teams of 10. And I would send uh, two of them off in different directions to uh, look for food. I'd ask one of them, I'd say, keep your eyes open for fruit on trees that looks edible, vegetables, maybe things you can pull up out of the ground. Um, I think uh, some of you should also be looking to see if there's any animals that you think we might be able to capture and slaughter and cook and eat. Uh, and I'd send off two to do that. I'd probably send one team off to the lagoon, and I'd say, you people, you got to find a way to catch us some fish. Because if we can cook ourselves some fish when uh, uh, when you get back, we're all going to feel a whole lot better because we are getting good and hungry. And then uh, I would send a fourth team of 10 off to find water and to find a way to bring it back. And I think I'd set up my fifth team to uh, set about trying to build a more permanent shelter. Okay, fine. Let's assume there is, you know, as there's likely to be slight success. You know, these are our city boys. I'm not sure they're just going to go out there and catch wild pigs on the first day. But, um, you know, they found some fruit. They found some vegetables. They, they, they caught some fish. Nobody's eating a lavish meal today. But at least starvation is being postponed. And you, as the teacher in charge, you know things are going to have to get better. Uh, this is not a way that you're all going to be able to survive till the uh, Coast Guard rescue arrives. No, now what? Well, next morning, you're uh, hoping teams just go off. Everybody knows what they should be doing. But wait a sec. Everyone's complaining. The people who had to get water saying, we had to climb up high into the hills to get uh, to find a spring. Those guys were just playing around on the beach. You, you know, they came back and they said they were fishing. But look, all they found was 10 fish for a whole day of fishing. We, we, each of us just got a taste. Why can't we have some time down at the beach? Let them go and get water. And then the people who were looking for vegetables and fruit, oh, yeah, we also had to go hiking and pushing. Why can't we work on building the house? So now as the teacher, you're, you know, you've got a little bit of a problem here, don't you? Because uh, deep in your heart, you know that specialization works. 
And you know that if you can make the fishing guys go back for the second day and the third and the fourth and the fifth, at the end of a week, they'll actually be catching some fish and you guys will be okay. And if you can keep the vegetable and and fruit hunters going, they will do better because they'll learn where things grow and where they don't. And then the, uh, the ones looking for animals will actually start catching some small animals. But now you've got people complaining because everybody thinks the grass is greener on the other side. Friends, what we're talking about is money here. But wait, if it isn't clear to you yet, it will be in just a moment. Because... You are now torn between the people wanting to say everyone else had it better and your knowledge that um, specialization will be to the benefit of the group. So how are you going to cope with the unhappiness? I don't know what you're going to decide, but um, whatever it is, if you decide to do the right thing, there's going to be a lot of unhappiness. Are you going to be able to stop people from fighting? And if you do the wrong thing, at least people will grudgingly go along and be agreeable, but the uh, food and water results are not going to be good. So what are you going to do? I don't know. It's up to you. You're the one in charge. I didn't say it was me. I said it was you. But then whichever way you you decide is fine. And then after uh, a little time goes by, another problem rears its head. Uh, people start coming to tell you that there are individuals in their 10-man teams that are slacking off. Have you ever heard of teenage boys slacking off? Yeah, it's been known. And uh, some of them are more diligent, some are less diligent. Some of them grew up in families with strong values, with fathers that inculcated self-discipline. And these are the boys that, that really work whether it's bringing water or finding food or catching fish or building shelter, they're working hard. But then there are others um, who grew up with, with different values and, and they're slacking off. And their teammates come back and say, it's not fair. All the productivity, everything we're bringing is done by six of us. There's four people who are not working at all. So now you've got to ask yourself, well, what are you going to do? What is going to be your policy towards those who don't work? Are you going to say no work, no eat? Or are you going to say we, we gather together everything that is found, all the food, vegetable, and everybody shares regardless? Because the, the problem of their participation is a social problem that has to do with their backgrounds. They're disadvantaged, and that's why they don't work, and they don't know how to work, and they have no self-discipline, and they'd rather pursue immediate gratification than long-term benefits. And so, as, you're, as the teacher in charge, you'll work on those aspects of it while everybody gets to eat. Is that what you're going to do? Or are you going to, from the outset, say, you're the ones who the group identifies as not working. You don't get to eat. Is that what you're going to do? If, uh, if these are topics that you ever want to delve into far more deeply, then I need you to go to my website and buy a book called Thou Shall Prosper, Ten Commandments for Making Money, and a book called Business Secrets from the Bible, and a, an audio CD program called Boost Your Income, and another audio CD program called Prosperity Power, Connect for Success. Partnership Power, yes. Uh, all of these gathered in something called the Income Abundance Package. Go to rabbidaniellappin.com and visit the store. You'll read about it, and uh, I think you'll see that if you or anyone else uh, is uh, in, in your circle, is in need of a major transformation of financial destiny, 
this is the material that you need or that they need. RabbiDanielLappin.com. And back to you, the teacher in charge. What are you going to do? And wait a second. It actually gets worse. I don't know what you're going to do. You're going to have to decide. But if you thought your problem was bad, it's actually just got worse because I've taken away 25 of your boys. You only have 25 boys now. Why is this harder? (laughs) You now are only in charge of 25 high school boys and 25 high school girls. That's right. You've now got 50 students, 17 and 18 year old, boys and girls. And you're stuck on this desert island as the only responsible adult in charge for the next 13 months. Your job to make sure that when the rescue comes in two and a half years, everyone is there. That 51 people are rescued. You and your 50 chargers. Not you and 45 chargers. And, well, how shall I put this? Not you and 60 or 70 chargers. Yes, that's right. Because one of your new decisions now, on top of all the other decisions I left with you with in the last segment, guess what? You've now got an additional bunch of decisions. Not only do you have to decide what to do about the groups that are unhappy with the jobs that are assigned to them and want to have a turn doing the other jobs, not only do you have to, and you resolve that one. You know how you resolve it? You find out that some some of them have backgrounds in fishing. You shouldn't have just assigned blindly. Some of them used to go fishing with their dads every weekend, and so they knew a lot about fishing. Well, those want to do fishing, and they're good at it. Put them in the fishing assignment. You discover others that have mountaineering backgrounds. and By and large, you try and arrange things into uh, so that people are in areas where they at least have some kind of natural tendency. But then you're still left with the other problem of what are you going to do about people who don't work? There are going to be some. And by the way, some of them are going to be malingerers. You don't have a large amount of medical equipment or anything at all like that on the island. What are you going to do about the the boy who says, I can't go to work today. I'm aching. And then a few more catch the strange malady. Or what about the boy who says, I've injured my foot and he hobbles around very convincingly, except when he thinks you're not looking. What are you going to do about those adult in charge? Do they eat or not? What do you think? Have you figured out what you're going to do about social organization? Uh, you know, these are 18-year-old boys who are now being asked to play a role in their own survival. Are they going to constantly continue to take directions from you? The entire social structure of the principal and uh, the danger of expulsion and grades is not there. What are, how are you going to maintain some structure? What sort of government are you going to go for? or no government at all. What are you going to do? And guess what? You've got a bigger problem now. What are you going to do about the very natural tendency of 18-year-old boys and 18-year-old girls to uh, find one another and enjoy one another's company? And uh, whoops! Oh my goodness! Look over there! We got a pregnancy! Oh, and another one! And another one after that! And now you have an interesting question. The big question of do you allow male-female fraternization, well, I mean, from your your job will be easier if you don't, I can tell you that. But how are you going to enforce that? You, you, You know, you don't necessarily have any spiritual rules. You don't have people with any spiritual sensitivities. And so are you able to talk in terms of right and wrong and premarital sex? 
you know, you've got a problem. Because if you're, all your 50 charges, your 25 high school boys and high school girls, if they are from a government indoctrination facility, I call that, uh, that's a GIF. Okay, and that's uh, the correct term for a high school is a high governmental indoctrination facility. If that's where they came from, there is no spiritual powers, no spiritual sensitivity. So now what do you do? Oh, we're not finished with the pro. Oh, look there, now the three pregnant girls. Well, pregnant girls go through uh, a time where they're just throwing up every morning. And they, the last thing they do is feel like work. What do you do? Do they get to eat? Do they get a share of everybody's food or just the food of the boy who impregnated them? And how do you find out who he is anyways? And what are you going to do? Oh, my goodness. You do have some challenges coming up. <clears throat> See what I mean? This is the real world. And you can camouflage it as much as you like. Go ahead, camouflage it with Armani suits and Mercedes-Benz vehicles and credit cards and banking systems and uh, online dating apps and nightclubs. Camouflage my desert island where I sent you any way you like. But the bottom line is that you still are dealing with the fact that human beings need food, clothing, shelter, and water. That's what they need. And that male and female are drawn to one another. Those are the realities of the world into which the good Lord placed us. And we've got to figure out how to deal with it. Societies that do not get it right are societies of chaos, of human suffering, and of destruction. And even within Western societies, on the outskirts of Paris, uh, in every large American city, uh, in states with large immigration populations, it is not hard to find groups, demographics, that don't know how to deal with sex and money. Because that's really what we're talking about, isn't it? That's the essence of this. They simply don't know. And that's why I say that if you can make sure that your children really understand the spiritual essence, number one, they really understand, number two, male-female relationships, and they really understand, number three, how money works, basically this incredible blessing of how money makes it possible for human beings to live far better with far less effort than cows or camels or cats or kangaroos. You're doing your children a massive favor. And if you yourself realize that these are areas in which you've been indoctrinated negatively, where you have a wrong understanding of how money works. And right now, there are students uh, throughout the West, in North America, in Europe, there are students who have zero understanding of how money works. Zero. 
and I've spoken to some myself, and I listen to what they want. They want many things. And when you ask them, and who will pay for these things, they have several answers. The answer that they're most commonly going to give, and by the way, you should do this as well. If you know um, high school students, and fortunately you do not have to be in charge of them on a desert island, but I hope you thought about that good and hard, um, you might want to ask them that. You know, what would you like to see in society? And they'll tell you things like a high minimum wage, or sometimes they'll say uh, guaranteed universal income. Uh, they might want to say uh, get rid of student debt, free free education. Uh, these are some of the things they'll they'll tell you. Uh, they'll tell you they should be in the in the richest country on earth, namely the United States. Which, by the way, I'm not sure it is for much longer. Uh, the um, uh, there shouldn't be any poor people. They have to be. We have to eliminate poverty. We've got to make sure that everybody gets enough. And you ask, okay, who should pay for all this? Well, right now, one of the things that uh, people who believe in this will tell you is that the one percent should pay. That's right, the one percent should pay. And it becomes very obvious that they do not understand anything at all about money. They have. Uh, become the one of the most privileged generations in the history of the planet and they literally give no thought to where their fancy clothing comes from where the good food they eat comes from they give no thought to it all all they do is think of their grievances things that are wrong with the world and how they the first generation of students in the history of the world that actually knows how to fix everything up and is infused with a spirit of altruistic goodness in order to be able to fix everything up. How marvelous! And yet it is with a complete sublime cluelessness about how money really works. There are people who will tell you, well, we have to take it away from the 1% and give to the rest of us. And you discover that these are uh, slogans, they say. Uh, the, the top 1% of America, you reach the top 1% at what earning level? And they'll tell you millions of dollars of income, which isn't true, by the way. Um, it's uh, in the order of two or $300,000 a year of income puts you in the top 1%. And... Uh, and they say, uh, okay, uh, well, the, the one, and then you say, well, you know, what, what do you do if, uh, you, if you take away everything of the top 1%, turn them into the bottom, and now what happens when you run out of money again? Simply no understanding at all. Male-female relationships, I'm afraid they're no wiser in that. You see, these are not simple things. But they're very real. And if you are detached from reality, you find that the essence of these things is camouflaged and you can't see it. And so they assume that the natural condition of mankind is the way they live on the campuses of the um, University of California, the University of Missouri, the University of Miami. They think that's how the world is. That's normality. 
And anything that makes it a little less than glorious and golden needs to be fixed up. They have no idea that the natural condition are those 50 youngsters on that remote desert island with you frantically scratching your head trying to figure out how you're going to keep them alive for two and a half years. That is the natural condition, not what people today in our spoiled, affluent, and yes, increasingly decadent circumstances begin to think are normal. And that, my friends, is is why I I wanted to devote uh, this entire show to telling you that if you teach your children, or for that matter, if you decide to teach yourself nothing else but a spiritual truth and reality, the reality of how male-female relationships actually work, and all there is to know about money, you will be doing your children a massive service, something they are getting from no governmental indoctrination facility anywhere in the country, and something they're not learning from anyone else or anywhere else at all. That is one of the great secrets of success of the Jewish people even though so many of them have turned their backs on these teachings today. But the teachings themselves hold up. These are the teachings that through Christianity helped to build up all of Western civilization. These are the teachings that made it possible for human beings to achieve levels of freedom and affluence that were beyond the dreams of tyrants in years gone by, but beyond the dreams of avarice of King Louis of France. Nobody could have dreamed of how human beings are able to live today in the West. But because we've abandoned these spiritual truths, we are watching in our own lifetime, we are watching these affluent societies sliding rapidly down the slippery slope of secularism, moving from affluence to decadence. And unless something is done from decadence, yes, to oblivion. The answer There is an answer. There really is an answer. It's a wonderful answer. The answer is recapturing the spiritual foundations that built it all in the first place. We can do that. It's feasible as long as we cling tenaciously to that biblical blueprint and the teachings from it that made all these abundant goods with which the Lord has blessed us the reality they are today. Thank you so much for being with me throughout this podcast. I appreciate it. Hey, please write and give me some feedback. Would you do that? I really do want to hear because I have so far been modifying the podcast ever so slightly here and there in accordance with ideas that I get when some of you write in. Do that. I love it. You go to my website, rabbidaniellappin.com and click on the contact us tab. There's a specific place and, uh, Not only do I read all the emails that come in, and there are a lot of them, but I do read them all. Many of you have already discovered that I actually respond to quite a lot of them as well. So um, I appreciate that very much indeed. Please do that and make sure that we can stay in touch in that fashion. So all you happy warriors, this brings us as far as we're going to go for today's show. 
Thanks so much for being part of the show. Thank you to those of you who've been so effectively promoting it. I've got quite a few emails this very past week um, speaking about, uh, oh, my brother-in-law introduced me to your show, my friend introduced me to your show, or people sometimes say, uh, I've shared your show with my family. Anyway, look, whatever you're doing in that direction, I really appreciate it. It's obviously very effective, I can tell you that. It works very well indeed. Uh, the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, the resource I recommend to your attention is particularly a wonderful book called Buried Treasure, Life Lessons from the Lord's Language. It's a terrific book. Um, it's got an opening forward by Pastor John Hagee, and uh, it speaks about life lessons, certain things we can learn from the way the Lord's language, from the way Hebrew is structured. Uh, I'll, I'll just give you a tiny section of one of the chapters on the Hebrew word for life. And uh, I, I think this is fascinating. And the, you know, you may f you may have heard the Hebrew word for life because it's the word that is most commonly used as the Hebrew or the Jewish toast when you raise a glass. And uh, the word is lechayim. Yeah. Now you want to work on the ch sound. All right. It's not lechayim. It's not lechayim. It's lechayim. So uh, try and work on the ch. It's like the um, the composer Johann Sebastian Bach. Uh, lechayim. What does it mean to life? And you know everybody knows. A lot of people know that. But what very few people know is that it's a plural word. It doesn't exist in the singular is fascinating there is actually no such thing as my life in the hebrew there is only my lives implication is very simple each and every one of us do not have only one life we all have two lives or more at the very least we have a physical material life we also have a spiritual life and for fullness of heart and for totality of happiness and success, one has to work on both those lives, the spiritual and the physical life. And that's really what we've been talking about during today's show. So, happy warriors, take a look at the book, read more about it at my website at rabbidaniellappin.com, and... Um, until the next week, till the show that we will all be together at next, I want to wish you all a week of good times with the four F's, with your family, with your friends to whatever extent you can, with your faith, with your finances, and yes, even though it's difficult these times, with your physical fitness, also important. Thanks for being part of the show. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. Spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. 